Welcome to Climate Solutions, a climate radio mini-series looking at some of the big ideas that are supercharging the climate change agenda. This is the second programme in a two-parter looking at the issue of democracy. Last week we looked at how fossil fuel companies are exerting an overwhelmingly disproportionate influence on our democratic process by looking at the example of fracking. The attempt to impose fracking in this country, in the face of tremendous opposition from local communities, threatens our basic human rights, including the right to clean air, clean water and the right to protest. It also makes a mockery of our democracy and undermines our ability to tackle climate change. The extent of this corporate capture of government by energy companies, whose very business models threaten the future of life on Earth, is also illustrated by research produced by Global Justice Now. Their Web of Power report showed that a third of the ministers in the UK government are linked to the fossil fuel companies and banks which drive climate change. Climate Radio has been following climate and energy policy at the local, national and international level for nearly 12 years and has seen time and again how, instead of moving to the clean energy system and low carbon economy we urgently need as fast as humanly possible, our so-called representatives continue to perpetuate the status quo and often devise policies in the interests of private lobbies which actually make the problem worse. So if our democracy has been damaged to the point where it no longer effectively operates in the public interest, what can we do about it? Do we need to reform democracy before we can seriously tackle climate change? I I think climate change is a problem of power, first of all. Um, You know, yes, it's an environmental problem, but it's not as if we don't have, you know, really impressive alternative technologies already. That is not the issue. There are a number of studies that show that, especially when we start deploying at scale, you know, including both large projects and local um, renewable capacity, we could be shifting to 100% renewable energy by 2030, according to a Stanford University study. So the problem is not is not the environment. The problem is power. Climate campaigner and compassionate revolutionary George Barder. George is a veteran of Occupy London, who has been active in the fledgling Occupy Democracy movement. So what is the problem of power? It's politics being paid for by powerful vested interest. It's the media being owned and paid for by by the same powerful vested interest, essentially. And what we're doing with Occupy Democracy, I feel, links up very much with all the climate activism I've been involved in the last 10 years. You know, I went to Copenhagen with hundreds of people that were utterly clear-eyed apparently that we weren't going to get a solution because it was not the conference of parties but the conference of polluters you know thousands of people with the greatest influence at the climate negotiations are the fossil fuel companies so not surprisingly that didn't lead to anything so within the climate climate change activist world i've been with people who've been saying system change not climate change for over a decade but what's significant about occupy i think is we're actually focusing centrally on the problem of power and i think that's what makes Occupy is such an inconvenient movement for, for the powerful. Before Occupy in 2011, there was very little public narrative about tax havens, about the 1%, about the incredible concentration of wealth and power, but Occupy changed that. And I think what Occupy Democracy was trying to do is to do the same for the parliamentary part of our power system as we did for the financial part of the power system and actually call out the, the out-and-out corruption that pervades 
parliament you know the, the different i grew up certainly understanding corruption as something that happened mainly in poor countries i now understand things totally differently a that the corruption in the poor countries is driven to a huge extent by international financial forces you know based in places like london but b that the corruption we have here is just as bad it's just official as recent stings have shown there is this stuff that, that is under the counter but a lot of our corruption is just is on the counter you know the, the mps have god knows how many other jobs they come from a big company to be an M- to be an mp to work in the government department they go back to the big company as long as they declare all these links in the in the MPs interests then supposedly it's fine but what we essentially have is as Owen Jones's recent book the establishment pointed out is it is a class of people that that rotate between the various institutions of power and keep things sewn up and going along in the current in the current direction and the current direction as you know the world bank the international energy agency price waterhouse coopers you know you name it deutsche bank have, have pointed out the current trajectory is an absolutely suicidal one from the point of view of human civilization and and the the, the antidote to that problem of power is the power of the people you you struggle to find i think any country on the planet where the majority of people would actually say that they choose the way the world is at the moment you know most people live in democratic countries so one way or another thing things have gone entirely wrong and and what occupied democracy is about what the the climate movement that's really looking at the, the system problem is about is mobilizing people on the basis of what they already believe in i.e. a decent functioning sane world where we can have you know happiness prosperity and well-being and not destroy things for our children and that is absolutely within our grasp both in terms of you know industrial technologies um, but also in terms of communi- communication technologies etc so it really is you know the the battle of of life itself and and like never before if enough of us sort of proverbially click our fingers and yes that does mean you know being prepared to get arrested and to to stand up against the you know the the discouragement of the state but if enough people are prepared to act together and demand a decent world we can have it you know it is it is a remarkable time to be alive this program will look at occupy democracy and its campaign for reforming our politics so that it works in the public interest rather than narrow private interests. In particular, we'll look at the movement's recently formulated set of six core demands. We'll also look at the potential for a wider civil society campaign for a revolution in our political system that could fall under the banner of a 21st century Great Democratic Reform Act. Here's Occupy Democracy activists John Sinner and Aisha Dodwell to set the scene. Well, you can say in a formal sense, it started with a resolution being passed at the Occupy London General Assembly just over a year ago on the 1st of March, you know, to build a campaign for real democracy because there was a democratic crisis in Britain. The initial idea wasn't really ambitious. It was to do a big set-piece action in October on the question of the democratic deficit, on the democratic crisis. Yeah, I think it's been a bit of a slow-burning fuse. I've lit something up and it's... It wasn't so much of the big bang I was expecting. I was expecting, you know, a big thing in October. But it seems to have gradually built up and there's a real prospect in May of having something quite large and serious. When I came down in October and saw the opposition to what Occupy was trying to do from the police, but obviously that's just representative of the opposition from the establishment more broadly, really kind of reaffirmed what I kind of already felt which is that yeah you, we really hit on something and I think it, it's, it's not incidental that the police response to Occupy Democracy is so excessive because 
I think that that only goes to prove it, as frustrating as it is for us that they kind of you know really limit what we can do sometimes it's really also motivating to know that they know we are onto something so in that sense I think we have had a bit of an impact and I think just in the last you know 48 hours hearing Occupy Democracy name checked in the main speech the leader's speech at the Green Party conference hearing us on the Today programme just realising actually Occupy Democracy's name is becoming part of the conversation and more broadly you know the kind of rhetoric that we talk it's becoming part of people's conversation and I think more so in the next couple of months leading up to the election but hopefully beyond because this is much bigger than one election in the UK. Several days into the group's first 10-day occupation last October, over 40 people were arrested for sitting on tarpaulin in front of the Houses of Parliament. It was on a morning when the number of protesters were at their lowest. John Sinner was amongst those arrested on that day. Yes, I mean, that happened when we had the situation with the tarpaulins where dozens of people got arrested. In fact, most of the group were in a crisis situation where people had their stuff taken, loads of activists had been arrested, so I felt, you know, I hadn't stayed there on that evening when it happened, so I felt I needed to come down and make, make a point and make a stand. I mean, I don't believe in getting arrested for the sake of it, but I think sometimes you have to put your money where your mouth is. Activism does involve an element of personal sacrifice. That's why, you know, it's such a precious thing because, it, you know, it's all people giving up their time and money to do something they, they really believe in. And without that, there'd be no democratic change in Britain at all. I don't think it's done by NGOs. I think it's done by, you know, people like ourselves who, you know, commit their time and energy and they're not uh, holding to any kind of interest group, have historically driven, you know, social progressive change in Britain. I've got, I would say, quite heavily involved quite quickly in the last five months or so, been very involved in Occupy Democracy, and, yeah, that's come at a cost to other areas of my life, my social life, my personal life. I've got a daughter who often, you know, I don't get home later for, I'm often on a Skype meeting trying to uh, multitask but yeah it definitely involves a lot of sacrifices but sacrifice implies a kind of negative I feel like this is you know a really important thing we're doing here and I really want to put my energy and time into it because I think that we're doing something really important um, for us for society for future generations I mean also just to say that because part of our process is about embodying the kind of society we want to see and because we're run in a really democratic way, it feels very empowering to be part of it. Um, it feels very positive and can really show you how people can organise, how society that's really democratic should be run. You know, just things like con consensus decision making, which, you know, for a lot of us, you might not have had a huge amount of experience with that outside of Occupy Democracy. So I think that Actually, it's, you know, just being involved is, is very empowering in itself. Numbers were at their highest on the Thursday night of the October occupation, when around 500 people took part in a General Assembly with speakers including Ken Loach, Vivian Westwood, the artist Taxi Driver and Assad Rayman from Friends of the Earth. In a spontaneous piece of direct action, people linked arms around the fencing and the wall of police that encircled Parliament Square. On the closing night of the occupation on Sunday, at a General Assembly lasting over six hours, 
a group of demands was discussed in an open and democratic process and agreed by consensus. The draft demands themselves had been suggested by working groups in Parliament Square during the week. The person who had the unenviable job of facilitating the nearly seven-hour meeting on that last night was Occupy supporter Julie Timbrell, who picks up the story. We had an existing set of demands, a provisional set of demands, which was started up at the first occupation, where we did a mammoth meeting and we did several demands organised around three key themes, people before profit, environment before profit and democracy before profit. And democracy before profit were particularly focused on the process of parliamentary democracy. And then over the following occupations, we looked at more demands following some consultation on social media. So by January, we had a very long list of demands and there was a general feeling that actually we really need to hone down on a few demands so that we could really concentrate on those. So we had a meeting, open meeting, where everybody was invited to. Um, We came to a common agreement that we really ought to focus now on democracy before profit because that was very focused on parliamentary democracy and we were approaching the election So that was a really good time to make those arguments. So the six demands are reform of party funding so that Parliament acts in the interest of those who elect them and not the 1% who bankroll them. A major democratic reform of the media to break the stranglehold of vested interest. Fundamental overhaul of lobbying and the way powerful economic interests inhabit the corridors of power within government. Introduce proportional representation so everyone's vote counts. MPs should not have conflicts of interest from either paid employment or corporate shareholdings. Hold a citizen-led constitutional convention for real democracy. You know, I think it's really important that we try at this stage, you know, we're still very infant in terms of a movement and, you know, the battle we're facing is huge. And while, you know, I feel sometimes we're in a bit of a David and Goliath situation, I think it's really important to try and start formulating what kind of changes we want to see. And I think they're small steps and they're not going to bring about overnight drastic transformation of the way society is organised. I mean, I think, you know, what we're fighting in a lot of ways is, is a battle of ideas and that, you know, that's a long-term game and I think we all know that. But in the short term, I think it's really important to keep focused on some tangible goals and, you know, trying to fight for things such as proportional representation and things like controlling lobbying, controlling how many conflicts of interest politicians can have. I mean, those are no-brainers. I think they will resonate with a much broader section of society. But I think, you know, things like the Jack Straw and Rifkin story that broke last week, you know, the media present that as a kind of scandal, as a, yeah, like an anomaly to how society should be run. And I think what Occupy Democracy does is say, actually, guys, this isn't a scandal. This isn't breaking news. Your politicians are allowed to do that. That is everyday business as usual. And so I think it's really important that we try and say that's what we're asking for. We're asking that politicians shouldn't be allowed to have second jobs, shouldn't be allowed to be influenced by corporations with loads of money who can buy their way into power. And, you know, I think that those things are really easy for us to to start, you know, what is a long campaign to change how society is run. Occupied Democracy's demands focus on the need to limit the influence of corporations over the democratic process so that it works more in the public interest. 
A report by the group Democratic Audit entitled Unelected Oligarchy concluded that the balance between the public and private interests quote, has been decisively and perhaps terminally tilted in favour of the latter, as government has increasingly become its promotional agent. I asked Dr Alan Renwick of the University of Reading, an author of two books on electoral reform, if he agreed with the report's conclusions. Uh, yes, I think that's fair. I'm, I'm, we're moving away there from my research expertise towards things where really what I can offer more is an informed opinion. But um, yes, if you look back at the 1950s, 1960s, for example, if you look at Labour Party manifestos from that time, then you see a very different kind of discourse going on and something that's much more concerned about uh, the rights of workers, for example, uh, the rights of uh, disadvantaged people throughout society. And you don't see very much of that discourse now. Uh, so, um, I mean, it, it seems to me that that is a reasonable conclusion, that there is um, a, a concentration on particular interests today. Of course, I mean, it has to be, we have to think about why that has taken place. And we, we have to recognize that the UK is today part of a global capitalist system. And it is possible, of course, to uh, question that system as a whole. Um, but it's very difficult for any individual government to do much about that system. And when governments in some European countries, in France, for example, have tried to challenge that system, um, they've faced big problems. So um, and we shouldn't kind of have a knee-jerk reaction of blaming our politicians for everything having gone wrong. Uh, the, the system as a whole disadvantages ordinary people and favours the super rich. And it's actually really difficult for any single government to do terribly much about that without the cooperation of other governments around the world. Donica McCarthy is a former vice chair of the Liberal Democrats who has recently written and published a whistleblowing book which not only exposes the way that the Lib Dems have been captured by corporate lobbyists, but details the corruption of our democracy right across the board. McCarthy is amongst a long list of speakers from civil society who have spoken at Occupy Democracy's monthly protests in Parliament Square. He's also been an active supporter of these protests, to the point where he has been arrested five times. He was recovering from the flu when I asked him about the main ways corporate capture of government takes place. It's almost hard to exaggerate how pervasive it is. It's almost every single aspect of Westminster life that you look at you'll now find corporate capture. One aspect of it would be the amount of senior MPs, directors, um, European commissioners, who are hired directly by the corporate sector as lobbyists as soon as they leave Parliament. That's probably the biggest area of capture because they then have got all of their knowledge and contacts and can use it to lobby on behalf of their legislative needs. That, to me, is, is, is probably the most important area. The funding of parties is, to a certain extent, obviously captured, but it's not as influential, in my view, on actual policy than the actual capture of the ministers and MPs when they retire. The other area that's significantly problematical is the capture of the House of Lords through basically deciding of peerages. The House of Lords is full 
of directors, of corporate directors, directors of the, the right-wing media groups, oil companies, mining companies, banking companies, you name it. For example, on the committee that oversees the budget, there are the bankers on the committee constitute a majority just by one. And another area where they are increasingly influencing the, the MPs themselves is through the fact that we're now getting a culture of lobbyists becoming MPs. So the career route is rich kid, leaves university, can afford to be an unpaid intern for an MP in Westminster, then uses that expertise to sell himself to the corporate lobbying sector, most often swans off and has a a very well-paid job, uses that money then to swan into a, a, a safe seat, and then he, they're becoming um, MPs. And then when they retire, they go back to the corporate sector. It's quite an extraordinary culture that's now growing up. So I would argue we are significantly moving or have moved towards a corporate lobbying class as opposed to uh, a political class. I'll give you an example with just a couple of pages, not a couple of pages, but um, Nick Clegg himself was an oil lobbyist. With the leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats as a lobbyist, the Clegg's party treasurer is a lobbyist, the head of Clegg's office was a lobbyist, Jonathan Oates, the Clegg's chief of staff was a lobbyist, Nick Newby, head of Paddy Ashdown's head of office, a lobbyist, and go on and on and on. That's just a Liberal Democrat. One of the most powerful examples I've heard is in a book that Donahue McCarthy wrote. He said that if you go along to party conferences, and he referenced the Liberal Democrats, he said for every kind of two delegates, there would be four corporate lobbyists. And around the party conferences would be a kind of a whole jamboree of events and drinks and dinners going on. So there was just this massive influence of corporate power in very kind of you know, in, in very indirect ways as well. I mean, obviously they'd be there and they'd be asking politicians to and making their case, but they'd also be smoothing politicians. And so I think that that's really quite corrupt. So that's very worrying. Then you get the more obvious ways that lobbyists have access to the negotiations that are going on about TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, where you get these meetings which... Um, are held in secrets, which are usually mainly open to corporate lobbyists or the devising of policy is done hand-in-hand with corporation and civil society has very little access to negotiations. So that's really, really worrying. There's a complete lack of transparency about what's actually being decided. That's really concerning. And I think there's the other interest, the other issue, which is about the revolving door as well, where... People will go from a job in government to a job in a senior position in a health organisation. So people profit from their contacts and they go between the two. And I think that is quite a dangerous thing as well. Yeah, MPs should not have conflicts of interest, either paid employment or corporate shareholdings. Well, to example, corporate shareholdings, why I think that's really problematic, is that MPs now can vote in Parliament on legislation which will directly benefit them. So they could be have a shareholding in a health company and they could benefit from privatisation laws. So, I mean, the Health and Social Care Act 
was a massive gateway to enable privatisation of the NHS. And yet MPs were enabled and laws voted on that in huge numbers and could benefit from their shareholdings. And also then went on quite often to get jobs in the same sector and directly benefited from that with their second jobs. So that's really concerning. There's nothing to stop someone being in the payment of an organisation that pursues policies which are at odds or could be at odds with their political role. So, for example, um, there was a case where a former Lib Dem lead on energy was also in the paid employment of the nuclear industry. So there's a complete conflict of interest there where it would be very difficult or him to come up with a policy which was anti-nuclear when at the same time he had a job in the payment of the nuclear industry. So that is the kind of thing that I think is very, very worrying. I certainly think that it's something we need to look at and we need to have transparency in because obviously whether it's a charity or a company or whoever, when you are trying to lobby on a particular policy area, you're trying to influence somebody else. If you can get your own staff from your particular company to be in that government department writing the policy, then obviously that's an even bigger <laughs> advantage than than others would have. Um, there is something to be said for the civil service having access to expertise, but we need to be clear about who is going in and who's paying the salaries and what policy areas it is that they're working on and where the influence is. Because at the moment, a lot of it is quite secret. We're starting to get some information through freedom of information requests, but it's been quite slow. Um, so I think it's difficult to tell at the moment, both in terms of civil servants being seconded to the private sector to get to develop their skills and experience, and companies, in effect, donating staff to government departments to help them develop regulations. The last voice in that sequence was Alexandra Runswick, Director of Unlock Democracy, which describes itself as a grassroots campaign for democracy, rights and freedoms. Another strand of Occupy Democracy's core demands focus on making sure there is a level playing field for all political parties, not just the incumbents. This is important when you consider, for example, that in a blind survey, most people prefer the policies of the Green Party and the fact that the Greens now have more members than both UKIP and the Liberal Democrats, while memberships of the Conservatives and Labour have fallen dramatically over recent years. Yet our electoral system, the way political parties are funded, and the way the media is largely owned by a group of corporate billionaires, mean that the odds are stacked against the Green Party, to the extent that they will be lucky to get even a handful of MPs as a result of the next election. Here's Alan Renwick again, discussing the pros and cons of Occupy Democracy's demand that we introduce a system of proportional representation so that the number of votes cast matches more closely with the number of MPs. Press Past the Post has two really significant problems. One is clearly it's not very representative, so it doesn't translate the votes that the various parties win into seats in Westminster in any kind of coherent way. It's quite possible, for example, at the next election that uh, UKIP will come third in terms of votes, but only fifth in terms of seats, while a party like the SNP will get uh, quite possibly a very large block of seats on a quite a small share of the UK-wide vote, at least. 
so, so that's one issue. And then the other issue, I suppose, is that because there are just so many safe seats under first-past-the-post, for a lot of the electorate, there's no real point in their voting. It doesn't make any difference. And that, of course, means that also that campaigning gets very skewed in the direction of uh, those constituencies where uh, the vote might swing, and indeed just on those particular voters within those constituencies who might swing. So it leads to a very weird, restricted election campaign that isn't about the views and interests and, and uh, values of everyone in the country, but is much more restricted on just some particular people. Tactical voting, widespread tactical voting, is another consequence of first past the post, that if, say, you are a Green voter, but you're voting in a constituency where it's very, very clear that the Green Party has uh, no chance of getting elected, then it does force you to think about, well, am I really going to express my uh, my particular stance by voting for that candidate, or am I rather going to try to make some kind of difference to who actually gets elected in this constituency? So a lot of voters face that rather frustrating choice between those two different things. It's not possible both to influence the election and express their true feelings at the same time. So you can get a much more uh, representative House of Commons if it's elected with uh, proportional representation. You can have the number of seats that each party wins being more or less proportional to the number of votes that each party wins. And you can also um, have far fewer wasted votes, so it's far more likely that uh, any vote is going to make a difference to the outcome. But of course, as I said, you know, no electoral system is perfect, and therefore there are also drawbacks to having a proportional system. Um, so at least it's often the case that it's harder for the voters to hold a government to account if you've got a proportional system. Uh, it's um, more likely to be the case that what, who forms the government is decided after the election through some form of negotiation rather than at the election by the voters themselves. And it's also, I suppose, the case that the more you want to get proportional proportionality in the outcome, the more you want to have an accurate reflection of how people voted in the election, the larger are the constituencies that you need to have. Uh, you know, you can have a proportional system with electing three people from each constituency, but that doesn't give you a very proportional result. It doesn't make it much easier for the, the Green Party, for example, to win any uh, seats in the House of Commons. So you need to have larger constituencies, but the larger those constituencies they get, the more remote are our politicians from us, from the ordinary voters. So one of the virtues of First Past the Post is with, with the single member uh, constituencies, people feel or at least it's possible for people to feel a reasonable sense of connection with their local MP. And that gets much weaker under proportional systems. But probably some kind of movement towards um, a bit more proportionality, at least, uh, would make a lot of sense. So as the number of parties increases and the spread of votes across those parties increases, then the disadvantages of first-past-the-post get bigger and the advantages get smaller. First past the post is a big thing, but um, the role of money in politics, for example, is also very important. The largest parties are able to get donations from uh, rich individuals, rich corporations, from the uh, trade unions in the case of the Labour Party, that outweigh anything that the smaller parties are re really able to gain. And, of course, in a sense, the larger parties should be richer because they have more people voting for them. 
but some of those people are, are, are extremely rich people, and those people have disproportional uh, voice in our political system, and uh, that's clearly a problem. Democracy is founded upon the principle of one person, one vote, but if we're able to influence through other means and, and those are not equal, then that subverts the, the democratic system. So, uh, you know, that is a real problem in how our democratic system operates. You know, it's obvious. You can't have a democracy where the very companies that refuse to pay their taxes are then paying for the political parties. And, you know, this is a system of favours, you know, and it's on the internet. I think it used to be 50 grand to have dinner with David Cameron, and now it's 10 grand. I mean, you know... I mean, I can't remember what, what documentary it was recently. I think it was the Julian Rubenstein one. I mean, he was talking to Peter Stringfellow, who gives to the Tory party, and he was the only Tory donor that actually talked to him. And he was like, well, well of course. I mean, why would you give lots of money to politicians if you don't want to have influence? You know, it, you know I think as Stringfellow put it, it's like, I, you know, you would probably struggle to find any time in history where some really rich person had turned around to a political party and said, here's a million pounds, don't care what you do with it. This is the system of patronage that has really been protecting capitalism from democracy for hundreds of years. From Unlock Democracy's point of view, what we want to do is to encourage political parties to reach out to voters, to instigate conversations and to raise lots of small donations from a very large number of people rather than um, one large donation from one individual. So the kinds of party funding systems that we're interested in are things like matched funding. So, for example, if you um, supported a particular political party and you agreed with what they were doing and you wanted to help them in their campaigning and you gave £10 to your local party, that would then be matched by the state. So the local party would keep your £10 and the central party would get £10 from the state. That would obviously be capped to low level because you wouldn't want to be matching funding for thousands and thousands of pounds of donations um, up, up to the cap. But um, So we would support systems like match funding, like tax relief on donations, which encourage parties to actually reach out to voters because one of the big problems with our politics is because membership of political parties has declined campaigning has become increasingly centralised and we know that this has a negative impact on turnout and on people's perceptions of politics. So we're interested in um, supporting small grassroots um, engagement-led party funding systems, so something like matched funding would, would do that. Yeah, the Green Party doesn't accept uh, money from corporations or they have you know, a different set of funding so they haven't deliberately set themselves up so that they won't be compromised by big money which is fantastic in terms of being able to construct a kind of a political argument which is more representing the people but obviously yeah it does put them in a huge disadvantage because of the way that the system is set up so I think the the kind of suggestions that came up in the part of the people report were about that were were partly about enabling small parties to gain traction. There's an alternative system that have been proposed so that funding is based more on membership, so that if you're a member of a party, then there's a doubling of the contribution towards that party. Or another idea that was proposed in the Power uh, to the People report, which was done by Helena Kennedy in 2006, was that when people go along with votes, they also get an opportunity to say who they would like £3 worth of funding to go to, um, which I think is a good idea. And there was also suggested in that report that there's limits on the amount of money that the corporations and individuals can give. 
so I think in, in, in that kind of system, you would have direct relationship between the people and the political parties. Another disadvantage faced by parties such as the Greens is that, to couch it as a gross understatement, their policies, values and assumptions are not well represented in our media. As a result of writing his book The Prostitute State, How Britain's Democracy Has Been Bought, Donoghue McCarthy has concluded that the most powerful pillar of our broken democracy is our media, which is largely controlled by a small handful of billionaires. Major democratic reform of the media to break the stranglehold of vested interests is one of Occupy Democracy's six core demands. Well, something like 97% of media is controlled by about six media conglomerates. Um, so, in effect, you have the majority of the media's voice is actually representing the interests of a very, very few and representing the interests of corporations rather than people. And I think that means that what's actually on the agenda is very, very constrained. So I think democratic reform of media is really important to have a more diverse voice. It doesn't represent just the 1%. And I think it's also problematic not just for the private media, but also for the BBC. Um, I think more, more and more awareness is coming up about the role of the BBC Trust and how compromised they are with people like the HSBC on the trust and other corporations. And actually, they're not a democratic body. And I think there's growing dissatisfaction with the BBC's coverage as being very, very biased. So yes, I think there's a, there's a need to kind of to make sure that we do truly have an independent media. We don't have an independent media. We have a, a media which is very much about representing the interests of a few. And independent media is always commonly held to be uh, one of the pillars of democracy. Um, so I think that's an incredibly important issue. It's phenomenal. I'll give you one, one example. I was speaking at a fringe meeting at uh, the Lib Dem conference in spring. And I laid out the case for the prostitute state. And the Lib Dem MP, David Ward, stood up and said he disagreed with me. And he said the reason he disagreed with me is because uh, I, I, it was worse, far worse than how I'd outlined it to be. And he said that that morning at the, at the Lib Dem parliamentary party meeting, the first item on the agenda was press reports. And he said after 12 times, the press team referred to the Daily Mail line on a political issue of the day, he gave up listening. Now why I tell you the story is that it actually, you're talking here about a meeting of a party of government. And the first item on their agenda, they're told 12 different issues of what the Daily Mail line on it is. Not what the voters' line is, not what the public line is, not what the civil society's line is, the Daily Mail. And that's owned by one billionaire. And that gives you some idea of the, the power in just one political party. The parameters of our entire political debate are almost set by these five people of what is acceptable today and what's not acceptable today. What procedures, even as true or not aren't true, is set by these people. And you cannot have a democracy set by five extremist right-wing billionaires. They have huge effects on, on, on elections. And every time Murdoch swings, you know, he, he seems to either pick a winner or the winner gets picked. But it's not just picking the winners, it's actually the shape of the manifesto that the parties stand on. Basically, the three top parties, in the UK, or top parties, including UKIP, 
all follow uh, a right-wing neoliberal agenda now, because that's the only one that's allowed. If any one of them stepped outside the parameters allowed by those five billionaires, um, that would be the end of the party. So Miliband has to dance around like a fairy on, a, on eggshells, trying to make sure that he doesn't upset them so much that they will just trash his party. And that's where it, 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 its impact is, is phenomenal. The Levson inquiry showed basically that for a generation our political class has been blackmailed. Um, we have to remember <coughs> that for the last generation, for any politician to stand up against what the Rebecca Brooks of this world wanted, they had to put up with having their sex life, their health life, their bank accounts, their criminal records, their families, their relationships, all were open to being having their privacy invaded, and not only just for themselves, but for their partners, their wives, their children, their neighbors, their parents, their um, previous employers. Everybody around them would be at risk if they decided to stand up against Rebecca Brooks on, on a political issue. We criticize our, our politicians for not having courage, but you know, that's asking a lot of people. And it's not just asking a lot of them, a lot of our politicians on their own behalf. But you're asking that courage on behalf of everybody around them, which is a, a huge ask for any society to make of any human being standing in a democracy. In what way should our media be reformed so that it acts more in the public interest? Well, the first thing we can do is actually the concentration of power needs to be eliminated. We cannot tolerate five people pulling the strings of our democracy. And so, therefore, we need an end to the corporatization of, of the media. Ideally, um, a media organization needs to be smaller, maximum 5% of the market should be owned by any, any one entity. And ideally, we should be moving towards, in my view, a employee ownership trust, such as they have for John Lewis would be the best, my view, best ownership vehicle for organisations such as The Sun or The Telegraph or The Daily Mail. Donoghue McCarthy is so exercised by the anti-democratic power of the media billionaires that he has organised a week-long protest outside the London offices of Rupert Murdoch's media empire called Occupy Rupert Murdoch. Here he gives us a little taster of what to expect. We're presenting a arrest warrant for Rupert Murdoch on 11am on Monday the 23rd of uh, March outside uh, Mini Shard Tower. And then we've got a programme, just like usual Occupy events, that talks on, on the various aspects about why Murdoch and the other four uh, media extremists um, should deserve a, a criminal charge. Um, their, their attacks on the environment, human rights, poverty, privatisation of the NHS, etc. And then on the Saturday morning, we're hoping a, a people's trial and then a big call-out on Saturday afternoon. So we're hoping to be a, a fun and interesting and important week. To find out more and get involved, go to occupythemedia.org.uk, which also contains more detailed reform ideas in a draft charter for a free and democratic press. Occupy Democracy's final demand is for a citizen-led constitutional convention. What is that exactly? And does it have the potential to set new values for our political system and change the way politics is done in this country? Well, Occupy Democracy have uh, come up with a variety of quite interesting demands. I think they're, they're all uh, pretty sensible. I think the most interesting of their demands is their sixth demand, which is to hold a citizen-led constitutional convention. 
the one that I know most about is the one in Iceland, where there was a citizen-led constitutional process, um, which started from the Pots and Pans Revolution in 2008. There was a real uprising amongst people and a kind of a plethora of little voluntary organisations and civil society doing lots and lots of different things to promote democracy. And one group decided to mobilise around having a citizen-led constitutional convention. They managed to persuade parliaments to engage with that process and there was kind of a committee set up and that committee decided to crowdsource a group of people to take this forward who were members of the public. So there was an opportunity for people to put themselves forward, then they were selected and that group of people then engaged with a much wider group of society through Facebook and social media and they developed a kind of a, uh, what's commonly referred to as a crowdsourced constitution. It wasn't led by MPs, it wasn't led by politicians, it was led by regular people from a broad range of society and that constitutional document is really, really inspiring. It comes up with with a whole range of principles which I think are really important, really common ones like transparency, but also much more radical ones such as prioritising the earth as well. Um, and that was then put to the people and did actually win a popular mandate. However, it fell through the parliamentary process and only some of some of what they agreed has been taken forward, namely the transparency has been taken forward. But I think it will come up again and I think what it shows is that the potential for a real citizens-led constitutional process to really start imagining, reimagining the type of democracy that we need at a really fundamental level. So really thinking about the values that we need, which I think is really important now. So I think I think a citizen-led constitutional convention, in a way, would enable what we in Occupied Democracy are doing to be done at a national level. We've gone out and we've spoken to people, we've got general assemblies, we've consulted on Facebook, and we're trying as much as we can to have a participative process. But a constitutional convention at a national level would enable all the resources of the country to engage everybody in the democratic process. And I think if you have that level of participation, you'll be able to deal with the magnitude of the problems that we have. I think there are a number of different ways that it could help. One is um, if you look at the international example. So, for example, if you look at the Citizens' Assembly in British Columbia, which was about changing the electoral system, that completely changed the dynamic of politics in, the, in that area. It, there was a really positive experience both for the people in the, the, the citizens in the convention. They did a lot of work about engaging the wider public, going out, having public meetings, getting a debate going, getting people involved, to the extent that, you know, once the convention was over, people kept going with that. And there was a real momentum and a real enthusiasm about it. Because... I'm always told that um, by politicians that people don't care about these kinds of decisions, that nobody is interested in constitutional reform. And all I can say is that's not my experience, that people might not be discussing it in using the same language as they do in the Westminster village, but there are people up and down the country having conversations about the powers that they want, about the decisions they want to be able to take in their community. And I think this could be a really... A positive experience that could not only help make decisions on certain key policy areas that are urgent that we address now, but it could also help to change the culture of our politics. What was interesting was the 
when they describe it, and there's a really good documentary out there called The Pots and Pans Revolution, what was interesting was the fact that they talked about debate and, and trying to seek the truth rather than maybe our current debating style in Parliament, which is quite often kind of, I must destroy you, kind of a punch and duty type kind of a politics. They were talking about a different kind of politics where you collaborate and seek the truth. And I think that one of the kind of assumptions around our political system at the moment is that people don't know much and people can't really engage in democracy. Um, but I think actually the opposite is true. I think it's not that people are apathetic, people are alienated from our process. But if there's a chance to really get involved, and I think Scotland illustrated that opportunity, when people think it is really, they can really make a difference, and this is really about making a difference to how things are decided. And when you, when you go out there and you give an opportunity for people to have their say, then I think people can, can get really engaged. So I think it's about creating a culture and opportunities for people to get involved and to trust people as well. At a policy level, so far, um, the Labour Party, the Green Party, the Liberal Democrats and UKIP have all said that they would support a citizens' convention. Um, to date, the Conservatives haven't said that they are in favour of it. But I, th- I think the, you know, the political mood is changing. There is a real sense with the Scottish referendum that, that things have shifted and that um, we can't simply keep going with piecemeal devolution and not recognise that actually devolution to one part of the country affects other parts of the country and that we actually need to come together to have that debate and, and to, to resolve those issues. But it has to be some. It has to be citizen-led, and it has to be something that is genuinely deliberative and isn't just imposed by the government, which is what we saw David Cameron's immediate reaction to the Scottish referendum result being. We need to reform our system in a way that gives voters some kind of space in which to engage with politics more seriously and more thoughtfully. And the kind of citizen-led constitutional convention where you have randomly selected citizens. Who, are, uh, who take part in uh, quite a detailed uh, uh, process of deliberating about core policy issues over quite an, uh, an extended period of time. That's the sort of thing that might begin to change the overall dynamics of our political system and force politicians and force journalists, force the media to be more thoughtful, be more engaged uh, and actually come up with something sensible rather than just coming up with sound bites that might swing a few votes. So if we think democracy needs to start putting people and planet before profit, how do we make that happen and force it onto the political agenda in a way that the politicians and powerful can't ignore? Very good question. Suppose as Natalie Bennett says, we need a peaceful revolution. I suppose I came up with the, the, the concept of a, a great democratic reform act. Because having wrote the book about how, how over-persuasive over the prostitute state is and how much capture of a democracy is such an overwhelming beast. I mean, remember, there's around £2 billion a year spent on just lobbying alone of our MPs, equivalent to around £3 million per MP. And I thought, look, looking at examples from the past, where, whether it was the, the antitrust laws in America at the turn of the 20th century or the Great Reform Acts in Britain in the mid-19th century, um, they took on huge powers huge powers that control over the media as well, as well as government. And they were taken on by huge coalitions of civil society coalescing around a single banner. 
And so I thought, why not? Why don't we come up with a, a great democratic reform act for the 21st century? And that would address the four pillars of the prostitute state, the prostitute media, the corrupted political system, corrupted academia, and the tax haven system. And if you could bring those all together under the Reform Act and, and tackle all four pillars at once, then maybe we might have some chance of actually regaining our democracy. Single-issue campaigns are, are very important, but if so many of them don't succeed, or they may succeed, and then they come back three or four years later. Uh, and the reason why for that is that, you know, so many aspects of the prostitute state are so overwhelming. And if we don't take, take on the media, for example, so many of those single issues will take years, if ever, to succeed. So I think it's crucial that civil society gets together and says an end. We need an end to the culture capture of our democracy. We need, a, we need a flagship democratic reform act for us to coalesce around and, and, and advocate. I think it's a really interesting idea. I think it would be a brilliant process for us all to get together and, and debate what democratic reforms we think are necessary. Obviously, if you actually want to get an act through Parliament, you have to bring politicians into the process too. Um, but I, I love the idea of there being momentum and there being um, people actively debating what kind of democracy it is that they want. Because I th as I said at the beginning, I think all too often people feel remote from it and that politics is something that is done to them and a democracy is something, some, somewhere where they live rather than something they participate in. So I'm all for ideas that actually get people motivated, get people engaged, get people having those conversations. So anything that can help um, start those conversations, I think, is, is definitely um, something I would support. Uh, yes, I think um, a, a campaign in favour of changing and improving the way our democracy operates is certainly feasible. I think it will only really achieve change um, in those windows of opportunity where the politicians are feeling vulnerable and feel that they have to do something in order to avoid uh, potentially bigger problems for themselves further down the line. Um, but I think we may well be in such a window at the moment and therefore the more activity that can go on um, at the grassroots level at the moment, um, the better for the prospects of improving the operation of our democratic system. Well, I think um, the the situation created by the Scottish referendum, that, that is a situation in which all of the parties recognise that the constitutional status quo won't fly uh, for much longer. They have to do something to change it. But exactly what it is that they can do to change it uh, isn't very clear to any of them. Uh, and they also recognise that uh, voters are disengaging from traditional party politics and from the two main parties, uh, or at least from the, the three main parties, to a greater degree than has ever been the case in the past, really. And therefore, they also want to do something about that in order to try to reinvigorate our political system. So I think the combination of those two pressures is really making them think about potentially innovative solutions to these problems. And the more civil society can push in the direction of having more active citizen engagement in processes of politics, I think the more the politicians are likely to accept to move in that direction. Back on the streets, where next for Occupy Democracy? We're going to have a longer occupation in May, um, where we're going to be really highlighting um, our six core demands, where there'll be a chance for people to debate them, but we'll also be holding actions 
because action is really important in terms of actually being there. Um, our occupations are about being in Parliament Square and saying we need to kind of we need to make a stand with our bodies because we're not being listened to. I mean, I think we, you know, one, one answer to how how you leave a demand is, is creative action. Our job as direct activists is to work out ways to do things in a way that actually creates a story, and a lot of it is about working with the Achilles heels of, of the media. You know, we don't have a state-run media. We have a highly controlled corporate media, but it can only function day-to-day as long as most of the journalists within it think that they're part of a free press. So there are all sorts of things you can do to actually influence that. If you if you create a story, make it easy for the journalists for a start, um, because they're you know, less and less funded, if you link it to other stuff that's going on in the news cycle, you know, you can get things covered that wouldn't otherwise, you know, so I think it is about being strategic and creative, um, but the more you can get you know, repeated actions, the more you get large numbers of people doing them, the more you can get people taking courageous steps, I think the more people listen. You know, all, all the evidence seems to suggest that people respond much more to people who are prepared to put themselves on the line for their beliefs than, than people who aren't, you know. So I think, you know, for me, civil disobedience is, is absolutely the key to the change we need to see. You know, I think recovering that history, that sort of Gandhian history, the civil rights history, is so crucial because what civil disobedience does is allow people to take calm, peaceful action that because of mass involvement or automatically has democratic legitimacy, um, but also because it's calm and peaceful, it's much more difficult to distract in the ways that the media tends to distract from most protests. Um, and, and I think it gives people that experience of incredibly powerful solidarity and courage. And, and for me, there is nothing more courageous in, in human possibility than people being prepared to stand in the way of harm, knowing that that you know they might get hurt or they might get punished, um, and not be sucked into to the, you know the violence of the system. And I think that's what civil disobedience allows you to do, like nothing else. So I think that's really what has to happen, most of all. Thanks for listening to this program in Climate Radio's mini series on big ideas for climate solutions. If you've been inspired by the voices in this show, check out. Occupy Democracy and Occupy the Media on the web. To pick up a copy of Donica McCarthy's self-published expose of our broken democracy without supporting Amazon, go to theprostitutestate.co.uk and if you are an occupier, fractivist, Green Party member or student who can't afford a copy, you can email Donica directly for a free PDF version. Join us again next week when we'll be looking at the absolutely critical issue of food in the context of climate change. My name's Phil England. Thanks for listening.